Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Well, today we are starting a new series that will carry us through the month of September that is focused on the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Now, if you don't know much about this book, that's just fine because we're going to cover some of the kind of main ideas uh, of Lamentations today, but then we're also still going to get into it as well as we spend most of our time in Lamentations chapter one. Uh, Lamentations is a, uh, if you open your Bible and you look at it and the words will be on the screen in a moment, you'll be able to see this for yourself, but it, it looks different than many of the books that you'll see in, in scripture because it is a book of prophecy and poetry in this really beautiful combination. Uh, it's prophetic in terms of its, its content. Um, it's written by the prophet named Jeremiah. You might have heard his name, or maybe you've read his best-selling self-titled book, uh, Jeremiah, found just prior to Lamentations uh, in your Bible. In fact, if you don't know where Lamentations is, look for Jeremiah, because it's a lot bigger, and you're not going to flip right past it like you might Lamentations, which is a relatively short book. Um, but it's also poetic, and for for us as, as um, it really, if you, it, unless you read the Bible in, or at least the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, the poetry of it just doesn't translate into other languages. But still, you'll see that it has uh, sort of these unique stanza, uh, uh, a unique stanza type of, of formatting uh, throughout the book. Now, we are calling the series Collapse because Lamentations uh, speaks into some of the collapsing moments of our life because it is written as a reflection of a moment of collapse in history. Um, Jeremiah is writing uh, right after, or, or at least reflecting on the events of something that occurred in 586 that would come to completely redefine and reshape uh, the people of God, uh, the, the Hebrew people. In 586, the Babylonians uh, swept through the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken, uh, but the southern kingdom, which included the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem uh, was still still intact until the Babylonians came and they wiped them out. Anyone who was left alive was taken away and Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple of God in Jerusalem uh, was destroyed as well. And, and if this was something, if you could go back in time and be a witness to this and, and be in this place when it was happening, I feel like the, the, the fitting word for that day would have been apocalyptic. And I mean a, 
I mean apocalyptic in the sense of the, the way a lot of us use it today, which means like the end of the world, because certainly it would have felt like the end of the world uh, if you were there. For some people, it was the end of, of their world. Um, but I also mean apocalyptic in the more traditional use of the word, uh, in the way that the, the Greek kind of pulls out of, it's a Greek word, and, and the way that the, the Greek is kind of the, the strings it's pulling on has to do with unveiling. Apocalypse was an unveiling event. Whatever an apocalypse was, it was meant to unve- uh, uh, unveil or, or, or reveal something. And for the Israelites, it really was a, a revealing event. Uh, because of the destruction that the Babylonians brought, uh, they were, the truth was unveiled unveiled to them. Uh, The truth of of who they were. The truth of God and his holiness and his otherness and, and, and the truth of how much God hates sin. Uh, Jeremiah describes it this way in in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, uh, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. For so long they've ignored and they've justified their sinfulness, but now all of this has caught up to them and they have to to really see themselves uh, for who they are. Uh, But today also, this is where it kind of gets into the purpose of today and the way it speaks into our lives today. Uh, Lamentations is... is, uh, it's almost like if it were music, it would be written in the minor chords. Um, it, it speaks a language that feels like a foreign language when times are good uh, for you and I. If, if you go to Lamentations and you're in a really upbeat mood, it's either going to bring you down or it's just not going to make any sense because it's written in, a la- in like the language of, 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 of fear, of confusion, of uh, anger, bitterness, sadness, depression. That's the language, really, that it's, it's written in. And, and, but when we come to it in that place, I think it really speaks and kind of sings in our lives. Again, sings in minor note or minor chords, but, but certainly, certainly sings in our lives in a, in a special way based upon where we are. And, and it takes these emotions and applies them against God in the form of a prayer. And that prayer is what we call a lamenting prayer. And that's also where we get the name of lamentations. It comes from lament. And, and lament is, is, when, is a prayer in which we bring our, our protest and our petition against God. Um, now, I, I know that there are some people, perhaps there are some people here, there always seems to be somebody in the group who... who grew up in a faith tradition or was just taught that you you can't or you shouldn't petition or protest God. Uh, and, and again, as a part of his holiness, that he, because he is holy, you don't question, you don't bring these, these prayers to God, you know, just keep them bottled up inside no matter how, how true they are. I do not believe that. I do not believe that in, in part just to, based upon scripture and how much lamenting is really in scripture. It's everywhere. I mean, for one, if if you think that that lamenting is not allowed in the Christian life, you have to ignore a great deal of the Psalms. You have to ignore all of lamentations. You have to ignore Jesus's final prayer on the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a protest. And so lamentations is a protest 
and a call to God to make sense within the confusion and within what feels like the heartache and the unfairness of what has occurred. However, we are not going to spend the next four weeks just complaining against God and doing all that. We'll do a little bit, but we're not going to do it the whole time. By and large, what, what, here's three things that I, I want us to be able to see through the book of Lamentations as, as we, we go along. Three things that sometimes are not always obvious to us uh, when we read Lamentations and we, we read into the tone of Lamentations. The first thing is that clarity isn't required for faith. You will not always be able to understand the ways of God. God's ways are beyond our ways. And of course, we can all probably relate to the experience of, of praying and asking God to make sense of the things that are happening in our lives. If you're a Christian, you've surely prayed that prayer at some point. In fact, a lot of people who aren't Christians pray that prayer as well to try to make sense of, of what's, what's happening. But, but the truth is, we don't have that view. And while God may at times give us glimpses of how things work together and might bring some purpose to the pain that we experience, by and large, we don't understand how it all fits together. And, and truthfully, if we were capable of reasoning to the same level of God's reasoning, I think that we would be so unimpressed with God that we wouldn't even be able to really call him that anymore. Now, here's the second thing. That God, Lamentations teaches us that God cannot be contained or controlled. All right, he cannot be contained or controlled. Sometimes I think we're, we, we find ourselves with a version of God that's very similar to a pet dog on a leash. All right, we, we, we pet our dog, we praise our dog, we give him treats, you know. He, he exists to make us happy. He exists to be there when we, you know, want him. If we don't, we hope he's somewhere else. He, if he acts up, put him in the kennel, right? If he bites somebody, put him down. Go adopt another one. Now, while God cannot be contained or controlled, what's also beautiful about this is that within this God who is uncontainable and uncontrollable, we find a love that is also uncontainable and uncontrollable. And that when we open ourselves up to the wonders and mysteries of a God that is not under our thumb, we see and experience a love that we can't even imagine receiving or giving in this world. So, with all that in mind, let's get into Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations 1 uh, opens with... Um, with what feels almost like a montage. Um, it's written in such a way that it feels like Jeremiah is walking through the destroyed streets of Jerusalem and he's looking around at, at all of these things that are abandoned and, and broken and he is remembering what they used to look like. Uh, we went to Detroit a few weeks ago over the weekend and, and uh, uh, it kind of, like to me, I'm, I'm going through there. I'm kind of like certain parts like where my, my brother-in-law lives. If we want to go from his house to downtown, we have to go through um, what's like, we have to go past like the old Ford plant and everything if you know that area. And it's like, you know the history of the place, you know what it was, and you know what it meant to the nation and to the world, but then you look at it in its current state, and you're like, what happened? And that's kind of what the author is describing in a way. They're going through this place that has been beaten down and broken and forgotten and abandoned, and yet remembering from his own experience what, what it used to be. 
And so as he does this, uh, he uses kind of an interesting play on, uh, uh, of speech in order to better communicate this. Now, as you read Lamentations, you'll find that at certain times they're talking in the third person and at certain times Jeremiah is talking in the first person. And that's on purpose because there's actually two voices in Lamentations, especially the first two chapters. There's the voice of this narrator, this one experiencing this montage and kind of speaking over everything. But then there's also this uh, this destitute woman who is meant to be the personif- the personification of the people of Jerusalem. And the narrator wants you to know and to join the story of this destitute woman. This woman who, who as this city has been, tossed aside, has lost all of its dignity, has been destroyed and forgotten and abandoned, and Jeremiah wants you to know, not just that this woman exists, but, but wants you to know why these things have befallen the people of God. Wants you to know why these things have happened to this woman. And ultimately, the reason is their own sin. But at the beginning, this voice of Jerusalem, this, this destitute woman doesn't quite understand it. So, so I'm going to read from Lamentations 1. Uh, I'll make note of where it kind of switches back and forth between language, and, um, and, and you'll kind of see how this goes. So, so Lamentations 1, uh, verse 8, we're going to continue where we left off. It says that Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despised her, uh, for they have all seen her naked. She, gr- she herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Lord, Lord, uh, or look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Now, at this point, it switches over here to first person. This is the the woman speaking. Lord, uh, look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing for you, all you who pass by? Look and see. Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that has inflicted, that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have uh, been bound into a yoke. By his hands, they were woven together. They have, been hung, they have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. In my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. To understand the author's pain, I think you have to understand first that Jerusalem is not just a city. It's not just a place. It's not not just a place that has kind of turned over and isn't, is a, a, a fraction of its former glory. 
for the people of God, for, for the Israelites back then, uh, Jerusalem was a symbol of their Jewish covenantal identity. Um, Jerusalem had been this protected city of God. That God had always looked over it to protect and defend and care for his people because the temple was there. In fact, even when they, when they despised God and when they turned away from him, God continued over and over and over again to protect and defend and care uh, for his people. But now everything's caught up to them. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of her people is kind of like a mirror that's being held up to their faces. Because for so long, they've not had to look at themselves. They've not had to face the truth. They've not had to see the, the justification for their sin. They've not had to see the way that they've been ignoring God and seeking their own interests. But now it's just right up to their face. And 586 BC becomes this watershed moment, this unveiling of the truth of who they are and where they've kind of, where they've gotten themselves into. Now, prior to this happening, God had been sending prophets, prophets like Jeremiah, to try to warn them, to say, this is where you're going. This is where, this is what's going to happen. Nothing that, that occurred in 586 should have been a surprise, but so is the case when we're not willing to look at ourselves. These things catch up to us as if they were never coming in the first place. Uh, there's a... Uh, uh, so I grew up in, in rural Iowa, and I, I, mentioned, I mentioned little old Swisher, Iowa, so often that some of you probably think it's like this big, you know, metropolitan place, right? Nah, it's like not even, a, you, like this room outnumbers uh, Swisher, Iowa. Uh, but uh, uh, in Swisher, there is this bridge. It's coming up here. It's called the Green Castle Bridge. Now, this is an abandoned bridge. All right. Now, I don't know how long it's been abandoned, but my dad, it was abandoned back when my dad was my age and used to throw parties on this bridge. So this bridge has history, okay? This is an old abandoned bridge. Sorry, dad. Uh, it wasn't in the script. Um, but but the, the point is, this bridge long ago used to span over this reservoir. And if you look for Greencastle Bridge on a map, you will see that it is in the middle of nowhere. Okay, so eventually when the, when the, the, um, when the uh, probably when it flooded and this bridge was no longer able to be used, the county didn't want to pay to take it down. The county also didn't want to pay to try to fix it. What the county was willing to pay for was a sign. They put a sign in the ground that said bridge closed and honestly it's enough it's enough because it's big and it's yellow and there's a few others you know and there's there's posts and all this kind of stuff it's enough to not drive over this bridge however people still would and you would hear about every so often that, oh, you know, somebody tried to drive over the bridge or somebody fell off the bridge. And in some of those cases, people would get severely injured. Some people would die because they, they didn't look at the sign. And for us back in Swisher, we talk about these things because not a whole lot's going on. So you talk about, oh, somebody went over the bridge again. If that's you, you receive no sympathy from the locals because everyone just says, didn't they see the sign? Right? Because that's how it is. The sign is there telling you. And if you are going to drive down a class B rural Iowa road with such unawareness of your surroundings, maybe you should drive off a bridge. 
that's, I'm not saying that's what I think. I'm just saying that's what people talk about and how they talk about it. But that's kind of the, the point here is because Jeremiah and all of these other prophets have been coming for, for years, have been being sent by God for hundreds of years, coming to Jerusalem, coming to the, to the Israelites, the people of God, and saying, look, where you're going, the bridge is out. Where you're headed is going to lead you over the edge. You are not going where you think you're going. Turn around. Come back. Follow the Lord. Repent of these sins. Come back. You haven't gotten to the bridge yet. There's still time. Turn around. Follow me. And every one of these prophets, like Jeremiah himself, is ignored, is pushed aside. Some are even killed. And no one listens. And then finally, in 586 BC, they come to the bridge and the bridge is out. They've been warned for so long, they've passed by all the signs. And now, God is doing what he said would happen. I think there's something within um, many of us that assumes that this kind of thing won't happen to us. We look back at the story of Israel and we think, well, that was them, but I wouldn't be like that. I would wake up, I would change course. And we challenge God's holiness by expecting his blessings, but then thinking that he's not serious about his curses. That he would be faithful to his blessings, but not faithful to his curses. We think that we can, you know, tug on the tail of the lion and that the lion's not going to turn around. That the, the teeth, they're just for show. They're not going to bite. I think it's ironic that we get upset if we feel that God has shorted us on our blessings, yet we, yet we expect him not to get upset if we short him on our own obedience and if we short him on honoring him and his holiness. In 586, the Israelites reached the end of the road. The Babylonians had arrived and everything happened just as God said would happen. The Israelites were met with the fierce reality of an eternal God, the, the one who is holy, that cannot be contained, that cannot be controlled, one who can easily slip out from under any size thumb that you try to put on top of him. And he certainly wasn't joking about the way that he would bless his people and the way he would curse his people. And this is the kind of holiness that, that motivates so many in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, to speak of God and his love and, and with a phrase that I think to many of us feels a little bit out of place, where they talk about fearing the Lord, that those who love the Lord would fear the Lord. I mean, consider this. So, so I, um, uh, Psalm 145, here's just one example, says that the Lord fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears the cries and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy. It's not hard to understand how God and, and holiness go together. It's not hard to understand how God and love go together. For some people, it's also not hard to understand how God and, and fear go together. But when we put all three of those together, God, love, and fear, sometimes it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And after all, that that isn't really reflective of how we have human relationships. Um, like, okay, uh, my wife loves me. Does she fear me? 
No, no. I love my wife. Do I fear her? Depends what I did. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We tend to think in relationships that if we, uh, if there is fear and love, that some, that fear will will cancel out love. That the two cannot go together. So, so why would we possibly apply any rules that are different to God? Well, maybe you've heard it, and, and if you've been, uh, you know, going to churches and listening to sermons long enough, maybe you've heard this before. But oftentimes, as a way to try to make sense of it, we target the word fear, and we try to say, well, what does fear mean? Is it the way that we use it and that's a fair critical question and sometimes we end up you know you maybe heard it like you maybe heard like hey don't think of it as fear think of it as like reverence right and and certainly being reverent towards God is important and true and 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 good in that way however I, I don't think that replacing fear with reverence is the right thing to do I think it neuters it just enough that we can kind of accept love and reverence together and then we can kind of kind of move ahead what I would like to do though is maybe target the word love instead of just targeting fear because love in in English English and ASL as well there is there's only one word for love for the most part there's just one word Uh, whereas in other languages including languages that that you know we uh, that are translated into English that we call scripture uh, there are multiple words for for love, and in fact, in, in some in some languages, there are um, there are are versions of love that can only and are only meant to be applied to something like a divine figure. And if you were to use that love, that word love, to describe anything but that divine figure, it would be blasphemy. But when it comes to the English language, we just funnel it all down into love. And as a result, what you get is that I can say, and it's truthful, that I love God. And I love pizza. And I love puppies. And it's all correct. Because we have just one word for love. To put it in a more simple way, I suppose you could say that even as the object of our love changes... Love, our, the word love, remains the same. And so as we think about God and we think about what it means to love him, perhaps, perhaps, just, just as a natural consequence of the language that everyone here speaks, that we might have our idea of love off a little bit. That maybe we're not in tune and, and by the limits of our own language, not in tune to be able to quite understand and encapsulate with just one word what the, author, what the authors of Scripture mean when they speak of God's love or of the love of God and the fear of God. Because God is infinitely perfect. He is overwhelmingly beautiful. He is entirely outside of our control. And he is 100% faithful to his promises to bless and to curse. And because of those things and more about God, we come to him with this trembling love, this fear of the Lord. And because of this, the voice of daughter Zion in Lamentations 1 can be somewhat hard to sympathize with in the same way that if you go off the bridge in Swisher, the local residents aren't really going to sympathize with you very well. 
She says, the, the, this destitute woman, she says that everyone is ignoring her in her sufferings, yet she has continued to ignore the sufferings of others despite the prophets who have come and called her to, to turn back to the Lord and to, to help those who are suffering. She weeps, or, or she weeps because no one is there to comfort her, yet over and over again she has not been there. The people of Jerusalem have not been there to care for those uh, who need comfort. She could be hard to sympathize with, which is interesting because in this story, that's who we're intended to connect with. It's all, whether it's a movie or, or the Bible, as you read or you watch or whatever, you, you find yourself in the story. And in the case of Lamentations, that's us. Or at the very least, a version of us that could very well become us. So while we may not have the sympathy with her, it is who we are in this story. Because if you're, following, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you're saying in part is, I love the things that Jesus loves. And Jesus says that whoever, uh, that, that, um, uh, whoever you did for one, or whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So just take this as a consider, like who here can say that they've measured up to this? Not I. Nobody who's honest can say that they have done this every point in their lives. That whenever we care and we love and we give hope to people in need, we are doing these things for God. Yet we can all recall examples where we have not done that, whether because we didn't have time, we just didn't want to. Many of us, we, I think for a lot of us, our, our, our calendars are just so packed that if we were to come across someone who needed help, we wouldn't be able to even respond like the Good Samaritan because we have so many things that we're, we're busy doing. And yet, it kind of, it leaves you thinking, if we can't live up to this, then why does God continue to live with us? Why does he continue to deal with us? Wouldn't it just be easier to wipe us out and to start over? Well, the answer to that question, if you want to be able to answer that, you have to endeavor into God's mercy and his goodness. To be able to answer that, you have to begin to understand that God being faithful to his promise to bless and to curse was, was made incarnate in Christ as he gave his life for the forgiveness of all. That he hung on that cross so that that sin that he died with was not something that had to be applied to us eternally, yet we would be able to raise to new life with him through his resurrection. So to understand why God hasn't just gotten rid of you and why he hasn't said, well, you know, it's a lost cause because they'll never, you'll never, will never measure up, you've got to get into his mercy. And that's where Lamentations takes us next week. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you do not, uh, well, that you don't treat us in the same way and with the same measure that we always treat you. God, that we are not perfect and that we cannot possibly hold up to every one of, of your laws, every one of your, your rules for, for righteous living and, and, for, and for giving you the glory that you deserve and for living in, in harmony and unity with the people around us. God, we just, we, we fail at this every day. Yet in, in a way we can say thank you, God, for your law, for revealing that truth to us. And thank you, God, that in that we see just how important, how necessary your death was. 
God, you loved us so much from the very beginning that you were not willing to wipe that slate clean. And so God, thank you for that mercy. Thank you that we have the honor of living within the coverage of that mercy. And God, we cannot possibly do anything to return uh, that, that, that thankfulness to you. We can't possibly give you enough praise to, to make it even. But God, we can love the things that you love and you love other people. God, help to embolden us through your Holy Spirit to be agents of love in this world. For people who look around and who see the need and who care, not because we have to, but because we just want to. God, help to craft that part of our heart where we can do that. And God, between now and then, we live in a broken world where we experience significant challenges, where we experience the anger and the sadness that, that Jeremiah was feeling. And as Jeremiah came to you in a prayer of lament, and, and while others came to you in a prayer of lament, even Jesus himself comes to you in a prayer of lament. God, we come to you bearing our soul, all that we have in our heart. God, we, we ask you to be true to your promise, your promise to be with us, to never let us go, to never leave us. And God, help remind us each day that we are yours. That by faith, by grace through faith, God, we are your child, adopted into the family of God and heirs to the kingdom. God, help us just to never lose sight of that. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.